So tonight's going to be a little like, I call it, rubbing up against wet paint. So what happens when you paint and you accidentally hit against it, you get a little paint on yourself, right? The more times you rub up against it, the more paint you get on yourself. So if it's one of those nights, be patient with me. We're going to rub up against some wet paint because we're going to talk a little bit about how we look at a couple of Christmas prophecies. And we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to look at that again. And there are a couple of prophecies in there that are a little different. Um, they're not the usual ones. You don't usually preach on these come Christmas morning very often. At least you wouldn't spend a lot of time in certain verses. So I'm going to begin by explaining something. And I meant it when I welcomed you to seminary. I want to talk a little bit about typology. Okay? This is, this is interesting. And I, I think it's something we have to hit on because it is in Scripture, so we need to understand how it works. So, this is adapted from a, a, an article from a gentleman um, from David Schrock. And uh, we're just going to read through just a couple of things I want to highlight when he talks about typology that you find in the Scripture. So, the issue with typology. When you talk and people talk about typology, and I'll explain exactly what it is in a minute, how does typology work? And, and I like how he puts it. Is it something that we do when we interpret Scripture? Or is it something that Scripture does and we recognize when we read and interpret it? In other words, is typology a method of interpretation, distinctive from a literal interpretation, and similar to an allegorical method? Or is typology something that is inherent in Scripture itself? So that's the big question. When we talk about typology, we have to ask ourselves in Scripture, are there types that look forward to Christ and what He has done for us in Scripture, and is it all the way through Scripture? Or do we get ourselves in danger of missing out and, or, or ourselves in danger of becoming people who interpret Scripture allegorically? And I'll also explain that tonight. So that's the basics Basis of where we're going. I still believe in a literal interpretation according to if it's written prophetically, we need to understand it prophetically, but I do see types and I'll, I'll explain that. So many do not feel comfortable with typology. So when you mention typology, there'll be certain people, even tonight, they'll be kind of their shoulders will be up a little bit, maybe a little concerned where we're going to go. Um, and the reason for this, and this is straight from his article, I would argue is not because biblical patterns are not in the text because too many interpreters of the text, and he's thinking of those who are hardline dispensationalists. So how many, when they were younger, had a Schofield Bible? You still may have a Schofield Bible. Okay, Schofield's hardline dispensationalist. I am not. Um, I'll be right up front. I understand that God deals with people differently at different times, but I think sometimes Mr. Schofield drew those lines really hard, and he talked about this dispensation and that dispensation, I think there were seven of them, if I remember correctly. It's been a long time since I've, I've held to that strong of a dispensation. So, people who are strong dispensationalists do not appreciate the way that Scripture was written as divinely inspired narrative where persons, places, events, institutions are historical types by which God unfolds His redemptive story. All he's saying there is this, that when you start to read the Bible and you begin in Genesis... The whole Bible is all about Jesus. 
And it's the unfolding story of God's redemption through the cross. And He reveals it one step at a time. And that's what He means by seeing it as an unfolding story. And He sees that there are patterns in there. And there are patterns. And we're going to touch on that quickly too. So finally, indeed, much of the appetite in evangelicalism for allegorical methods and figurative readings is an overreaction to the lifeless, read Christless, readings of the Old Testament when preachers of the New Covenant argue that they do not need to preach from the Old Testament. And that's a danger. You all remember Andy Stanley. How many remember that argument? Remember when he said, we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament? And then he did some huge backtracking on that to clarify exactly what he meant. Um, I don't think he was, I, don't, I still don't agree with everything he said, but he wasn't quite as heretical as what people were making him out to be when he made the statement, but it probably wasn't a good statement to make. So one of the things we have to understand, one of the problems in evangelicalism for many years was this concept of allegories. And they would see allegories and types everywhere. And, and, and I'm going to show you one in just a second from Augustine. So, but only draw out principles for living and moral examples. They misread the Bible and they excise 39 books which proclaim the glories of Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 3.8, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham and the way he did it was by type, shadow, promise, and pattern. And if we look at Galatians 3.8, we read this, starting in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the argument, that, that it, and it's, it's taught in all the seminaries now, they, they still look at the interpreting Scripture literally. They haven't moved from that, but what they're seeing is that from the very beginning, Christ is being introduced. And, they're, and it's all moving in a redemptive thread through the Old Testament to His birth and to the cross. And we need to see and understand Scripture has that theme. And this would be one of the verses they would point to saying, look, the, the gospel was preached long before Christ ever entered as far as a baby in the world. Okay, so another issue. Indeed, we do not need to make the mistake of allegorizing the Old Testament in order to correct the mistake of a grammatical historical approach which denies typology. That's a little bit of overstatement because some of your favorite preachers would, would see typology, but... They see it a little differently than what this gentleman might. No, read rightly a grammatical historical approach to the Bible is filled with typology because the Bible is written typologically. Okay, so all they're saying there is that there are foreshadowing and there are types in the Bible, and we're going to look at some tonight, and that that's okay. We still look at it from a historical, literal, grammatic point of view, but we need to recognize that there are some types in the Bible. Okay, you're still with me, right? No one's fallen asleep yet. Okay. Indeed, the only way to see Christ in all the Scripture is to see how types and patterns and shadows 
and servants fill the pages of the Scripture until the substance, so a type always looks forward to Christ, the substance of Christ comes in the life, death, and resurrection of God the Son. So I don't think this guy's heretical. Um, you can get the article online. It's easy to find. You can ask me and I'll send it to you. Here's the danger of typology. To see everything as a type. So we can begin to see everything in the Old Testament as a type. And then, to me, you get to where you're starting to see it, everything as an allegory. And, and you can begin to read everything in it as an allegory. And you can make Scripture almost say anything you want. So there's the danger to me if you start seeing too many types that you can slide into this allegorical theme and see everything as an allegory. So here's an example of an allegory. Augustine's Interpretation of the Good Samaritan. And please follow along. You ready? Augustine's Interpretation of the Good Samaritan. There is a man, Adam, traveling on a road. We all know the Good Samaritan, right? Everybody here knows? Okay, good. There is, Adam is traveling on a road. Having been stripped of immortality and beaten to persuade to sin by robbers, the devil, he is ignored by a priest, the law, and a Levite who represents the prophets before being attended to by a Samaritan who is Jesus Christ. And the Samaritan takes him to the inn or the church where two denaria, the promises of this life and the life to come, are paid to the innkeeper who represents the Apostle Paul to take care of the man. Yes, I was unsure how, how, how Augustine got that out of the Good Samaritan. So that's the danger of too much typology is you begin to see everything in an allegory and you, you overreach. And you've probably all sat through sermons. I know Paul and I have discussed this. Uh, well, it was a wonderful message, but it was probably the wrong text to use that message out of. And he could have gone to the right text. So you'll find people try to to take a, 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 a square peg and shove it through a round hole, as the old saying goes. They try to make the word fit and say something that it really doesn't. And that's a danger from our pulpit a lot. Because it, it, it means you don't have to study Scripture quite as much. You can grab allegories and just go with a good Christian thought, and away you go, and you don't have to do the, the dirty work of looking at the words and looking at the context and, and doing the hard work of putting something together. I know when I was younger, there were a lot of pastors at that time in some of the schools really approached things from an allegorical sense. And it's like, look, this is not Pilgrim's Progress. This is the Word of God. It's much different. So there's a danger to that. Oops, i got to go the right way. So definition of a typology. Here's Dr. William, uh, Graham Cole's definition. The idea that a person, Moses, events, the Exodus, and institutions, the temple, can, in the plan of God, prefigure a later stage in the plan and provide a conceptuality necessary for understanding the divine intent. The coming of Christ to be the new Moses, to affect the new Exodus, to be the new temple. All he's saying there is this, that there are things in the Old Testament, he's correct, that foreshadow. If you start to read the book of Hebrews, it looks back. It looks back to the priesthood and what happened at the temple, and it talks about it 
being a foreshadowing. It talks about it being a type, and it talks about it teaching us of what it was going to be like when Christ came. So there is typology in the Old Testament. MacArthur simplifies it a little bit. Whenever we talk about a type, we mean an Old Testament picture of a person, an Old Testament picture of the person and work of Christ. I think that's pretty simple, and that's what we're looking for. One more. Our warrant for typological interpretation rests also on the authority of Jesus, who frequently identified himself with some of the Old Testament event that foreshadowed him in some way. Okay, I like that one. That one's pretty good. My preference is to acknowledge typology when Scripture acknowledges it. So when Scripture says this is a type, then I believe it's a type. When Scripture is silent, I prefer to use the term illustration. This, I, I might even go for foreshadow if somebody wants to say that. I'm a little hesitant of calling everything a type. Joseph would be one. A lot of people will say Joseph is a type of Christ, but with no reference. No, Jesus doesn't say it. None of the apostles. So my concern is, okay, well, I can see that Joseph is maybe a foreshadow, an illustration of the life of Christ, but I, I, I kind of hold back on that typology because it's not something that Scripture says. So I hold back a little bit on it and prefer to use the terms foreshadow or an illustration. But it's certainly we can see a lot of similarities between what happened to Joseph and what happened through the ministry and life of Christ. So an example. Here's typology. In the Old Testament, we read about the brazen serpent, right? They had sinned. They, they, they put the serpent on the pole, and it had to be lifted up. And if you looked upon the serpent, you were healed. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So I have no problems going and saying, okay, when Moses held that up, it, it, it was a type, and, because the, the New Testament's telling us that. Just like that foreshadows, and we want you to understand, the people were saved by looking at the serpent, the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross, and he's going to provide a different healing, though. But it helps us illustrate and understand. Another example, the flood of Noah's day in Genesis 6 through 7 is used as a type in baptism. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the word type, though, Peter uses the phrase which corresponds to this. Um, so Scripture is clear. There's no guessing. It's not an allegory. It's very clear. So we look at 1 Peter 3. Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, where the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. He's not talking about baptismal regeneration, but we're not going into that tonight. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it points back to, okay, here's a type for it that, that we can see out of the Old Testament. Whoops. And then there's antitypes. If you're listening to some of the preachers, MacArthur's big on this, and there's a few others. So we look at the Old Testament sacrificial system. They talk about lambs being slain. Um, that was part of the system. We're all familiar with that. 
John 1.29. The next day, this was John the Baptist speaking, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that one was quite clear. There are many pictures of the Old Testament that picture Christ, and they're called types. When a, when, when a person refers to Christ as a type or an anti-type, he means he is the fulfillment of the type. So the type was the sheep being um, sacrificed on the altar. Jesus fulfills that, so they'll ref- theologians will reference it, that as being the anti-type. Now, have I thoroughly lost you? Don't look at me like that, Becky. <laughs> so, typology and prophecy. And in the New Testament, there are some types that show up in prophecy. There's two main types. Direct verbal prophecy. So Micah 5.2, which we looked at a, a couple of weeks back, is a direct verbal prophecy. It's going to be born in the town of Bethlehem. It's right there. It's easy to read. Then there's indirect typological prophecy or typical predictive prophecy is what they would call it. An example of this would be John, where we talked about a little while ago, the snake being lifted up. No one, when they wrote that, and that was written by Moses, when they wrote that about the snake being lifted up, it wasn't being written directly for Christ at that time because they did not understand that. They weren't thinking of the Messiah But in the New Testament, they look back at that and say, hey, that's a type. So they're calling that prophecy an indirect prophecy. We see it fuller now where we are than they did in the past. They didn't understand it all in the past. Now we understand what it is. And this is somewhat what we see in our Christmas story when we look at Matthew chapter 2. So if you're not there... Open up to Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to see a couple of prophecies here that are somewhat indirect prophecies. They're not direct. We've already dealt with the direct one in Matthew 2 already. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star, and when it rose... And have come to wor- when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And that was because he was a butcher and he just killed everybody. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. And they told him, Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. We all remember, Herod is, when I called him a butcher, he really was. You know what Herod did for his will, right? Everybody know what he said in his will? So how did he get the people to mourn? Yeah, and his will was to kill all these people so that when he died, they, they would be wailing in, in the streets. And it wasn't necessarily for him, but there would be wailing in the streets when he died because he put to death all these people. He was not a very nice man. Verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall be shepherd of my people Israel. And this is the one we dealt with. And it comes right from Micah 5. There's the same slide we used a few weeks ago. 
But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So that was one prophecy we talked about. On to verse 7. Then Herod summoned his wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that had been seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where, no longer talking about a baby, where the child was. So the little baby had grown. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with, the, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt. You ever wonder why he went to Egypt? Pardon? That's right. You've been reading my slides. <laughs> He's right on. Why? Well, first, because we're going to find out it's a prophecy. Second, there was a large portion of Jews there. The infrastructure, when, they, when Alexander the Great made Alexandria, uh, he put in infrastructure for Jews. There was already a large portion there. So when he built his city in Egypt and named it after himself, the humble man that he was, um, he made sure there was infrastructure. So there's an estimate there might have been up to 100,000 Jews just in Alexandria or more. And some estimate that all of Egypt probably had about a million Jews living in it at that time. So there were tons and tons of Jews. Uh, this is why sometimes when you hear the arguments between the Arabs and the Jews, by this time a lot of the bloodlines had been mixed um, in, in regards to that. But there was a lot of Jews in Egypt. So for Mary and Joseph to go to Egypt, it wasn't like they were going to go to a, a foreign place where they wouldn't find help or anybody. They were going to go to a place where they would find refuge for a time and, and very much be welcomed, be able to speak their own language, have people understand uh, their, their Jewish background and religion very easily. To the next verse, verse 15. And they remained in Egypt there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, so anybody know where that comes from? Right, Hosea 11. So, we'll call Hosea. It recalls God's interactions with Israel, past interactions, all that's gone on before him. How God brought his son, Israel, out of Egypt. It talks about how God redeemed the nation out of bondage. 
Um, and in, if you were just to read, though, Hosea, the book, and, and you came to Hosea 11, it, it's not going to strike you that that's a prophecy. You're just going to read over it, and you're, you're not even going to think it's a prophecy. So let's look at the verse. And when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, the, the burning offerings to idols. Yet, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. So when you're, when you're reading that, no one's going to go, oh, look, there's a prophecy. We just, we wouldn't see that. It, it's just really not there for the original reader to understand that. So Israel is the Lord's bride. Uh, but Israel has instead joined herself to Baal, worshiping Baal, which violates the first of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 23. And, and Hosea describes it as, as spiritual adultery, an offense, um, that he, the offense against the marriage relationship between the Lord and Israel is what it was. Uh, spiritual unfaithfulness, it's compared to the whole book of Hosea with a wayward wife, right? So we... We have Hosea and Gomer. I can, only, I can never get Gomer Pyle out of my mind when I say her name. <laughs> but Gomer. And, and he, um, he takes her in. And there's different thoughts to whether she was unfaithful before. But, but she takes off. And, and she prostitutes herself around. Matter What's one of his kids' names? I can't say the Hebrew, but it means... Not my kid, not my child. That's what we named one of the children. And it's a story of that God keeps telling, telling Hosea, go back and get your wife. Go back. I mean, he has to purchase her back one time to redeem her. And it's an illustration of God's love for us. So this is a wonderful illustration of no matter how unfaithful our unfaithfulness to God is, that he is there ready to forgive us. God doesn't forsake us. It's the essence of the Christmas story. Love in a manger, pointing to a cross, saying, I, I've not abandoned you. I'm here for you. It's, it's actually, it, it, as sad as it is in some ways, it's a great reminder of how God pursues us and cares for us. So, just a little outline, just for some reference, and I took this from Grace to you. They did a good job with it. We begin with an adulterous wife and a faithful husband for almost the first three chapters. It breaks down to where we see the relationship between Hosea and Gomer. And then we see what God relates with Israel and how he compares that. And then we see in chapter 3 that Hosea redeems his wife and everybody's reconciled together. And then we move into the second part of the book, Adulterous Israel, and we now have a comparison to a faithful Lord and God that cares for them. Uh, adulterous Israel is found guilty, and then adulterous Israel is going to be put away and judged. And the book ends with talking about adulterous Israel being restored again at a future time. 
So Hosea is that picture of God's relationship with Israel. And long before the rabbinical first century, rabbinical writings and literature began to see the Exodus event as a type of salvation for the, for the coming Messiah. So we've got to keep that in mind as we read through this. So, why does Matthew choose Hosea 11, verse 1? Well, the Holy Spirit gave it to him. That's why the biggest reason God said, as he was writing, you're going to quote this verse. So Matthew, though, saw the salvation Jesus provides as a new rescue from slavery, the slavery of sin, as a new exodus from bondage. So Jesus establishes that new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah. That was a, a direct verbal prophecy. He, he sees that, that it's a better covenant than what God had made with Israel, that it was in Christ and better than the one they received coming out of Egypt. And that was a little bit of what Hosea was pointing towards, the new covenant, the covenant to come. And that is all seen when we look what Matthew uses the verse for. So the book of Matthew points out various times um, how Jesus mirrors uh, the history of Israel. Uh, so we see that the resisting temptation, Israel keeps repeatedly, repeatedly fails. Uh, there's also a correlation between the 40 days in the wilderness and Matthew talks about the 40 years in the 40, oh, sorry, 40 days, yes, Israel's 40 years in the wilderness and Christ's 40 days in the wilderness. He parallels those. So it's natural to see that Hosea 11 is another type and this time, Jesus is sort of retracing the, Israel's footsteps in, his, in, in how he fulfills things. And they call that an indirect typological prophecy. We would never know it, but the Holy Spirit's saying, look, this is a picture of what's happening. And, and just as I called Egypt out of Israel and I created a covenant for them, I'm calling my son out of Israel and I'm creating a, a new covenant. And that's with all of us. That was through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's how that one in Matthew fits in. Now let's go back to our Christmas story. Because there's one more we have to talk about. When Herod, verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent out and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel that he gives the prophet that's being referenced. All the other little things that he looked back to the Old Testament, he didn't tell us which prophet. We had to go search it out. He tells us this time. This is from Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So he quotes out of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31.15 Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weeping, Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So what's the context? 
while Jeremiah 31 looks towards the future, it's looking towards the new covenant, the restoration of the land, the forgiveness of sins, peace and prosperity. Verse 15 in Jeremiah 31 is the only verse that comments on their current situation. It's the only verse that talks about what's going on right now in Israel. Verse 15 reflects the grief of watching their sons go to battle, both previously with Assyria and soon to be with Babylon, and not return. Some die, and others were captured and taken to foreign lands. And then there would be the exile of much of the nation, twice leaving through Ramah, north of Jerusalem, to be taken to captivity to the north. And that those left behind or those separated would weep for their children to be seen no more. Because after all, if you're going to break up a country from not fighting a war against you, are you really interested, take no offense to this, but if you had to haul a bunch of people across thousands of miles and you're trying to keep them from building an army or doing anything, I'll just use myself as an example. Would you take me? No. <laughs> Paul, we'd get left behind. We're not much of a threat anymore. <laughs> we'd be sitting there. But they take your sons and your daughters because they want to keep an eye on them because they're the ones that could form an army. They're the young and strong ones now. And so as they watch people leave, they would weep because they'd be separated from their children. They're not going to see them again. Ramah is about six miles north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem's about six miles to the south. Rachel, Rachel is often referred to as the mother of Israel, right? So she's buried near Bethlehem. Ramah means a high point. And I don't know this. I've never been to Bethlehem. I'll have to take the word from one of the commentators who has been there. And he asked, he kind of lost his way, I guess. He was trying to find out where uh, Rachel's tomb was. And he says, where's Rachel buried? And the other Ramah. There's a high point that overlooks Bethlehem, I guess. And that's where they believe Rachel's tomb is. And that is on a road between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. So we talk about the Ramah and where they would have wept for the children, both leaving from the northern kingdom and from the southern kingdom. We also need to talk about near and far prophecy in the fulfillment of prophecies. So if you think of a mountain range, anybody ever driven out east? I lived in Colorado for a while. Out west, I mean. Anybody driven out? To, okay. Yeah, okay. So I lived in Colorado Springs, and I remember as we approached the Colorado border, you could begin to see the mountains off in the distance. And, and they'd be layered, but they looked really close together. But when, when I got to drive through the mountains, I was working with a mission group and we had to go into, we went across the Great Divide, as they call it. And I was like, those mountains are really far apart once you get into them. Sometimes prophecies like that, they don't know when the fulfillment's going to be, but there'll be a dual or double fulfillment. And it looks together, but there's a long time in between them. Um, so it, this is still a typical predictive prophecy, but there's time in between. Jeremiah refers to the mother's mourning in the present day. Matthew tells us that there's a dual fulfillment to come. 
Herod fulfills this when he hunts down the Messiah. There are possibly 20 children, so I, I know some of them exaggerate how many. In 20s, a lot of kids to die, um, so we're not making light of that, but there's about 20 children. But there would have been mourning through that whole region for those 20 babies. And so this was a, a, a typical predictive prophecy, and there was a dual fulfillment to it. One at the time of Jeremiah, as they wept, as they would have been invaded one more time, this time from Babylon, and they would have gone through both Ramas. The Rama just outside of Bethlehem, they would have gone through the one up through Jerusalem, and they would have wept as they took their people, and they lost their sons and daughters forever, and, and those that would have been lost in battle. So, adhering for our prophecy, Jesus once again follows the life of Israel. Just as God said there was hope for the exiles, and that's what he says in Jeremiah and Hosea, there was hope for the weeping mothers. The Messiah here escapes, but one day the Messiah is going to return and fulfill that new covenant. And, and, and the Messiah did come back to Israel. The Messiah did come back, lived his life, died on the cross, rose again for our redemption, and has fulfilled that. And we are now in that mountain range, right? Because the Old Testament and the New Testament talks of a, a second advent. And, and although, you know, generation after generation, I, I remember one of my aunts used to talk about, oh, when we were in the Second World War, we all thought Jesus was going to come back. And, and they can see what the Scripture says, but we're in that mountain range. And it's still going to be fulfilled sometime farther out. Okay, so as we celebrate the first advent, we look forward to the second advent and the fulfilling of the new covenant. So I hope you do that this Christmas too. As we celebrate advent and as we look forward to Christmas, that we all have longing hearts for one day when Christ will return at the second advent. And all this will be wrapped up. There won't be mourning in Rama. There won't be mourning in Forest or London or anywhere because we'll be together once and for all under the new covenant with Christ. Okay, I got a challenge for you. And then we're going to sing one last song. And I'm not going to answer this for you. You can go figure it out. Here it is. Something to keep you busy over the holiday season, okay? The verse cannot be linked to a prophet or found anywhere in the Old Testament. And that's Matthew 2.23. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So go home and try to figure out that one because you can't find it in the Bible anywhere. <laughs> and that one's a hard one to deal with. So I challenge you to go study and, and see where it comes from.